This episode is brought to you by Henchman and more. When you're in the market for a lackey or flunky to do some unpleasant cleaning in your personal life, there's no better way to end up with your jugular ventilated and your pockets rifled than to post an ad on Craigslist for a hired gun who will kill. No questions asked. You will be successful in finding killers, that much is true. But wouldn't it be better to pay a little bit more for a reliable boot boy recruiter and know you're getting quality for your money rather than trusting Yelp ratings? By the way, they prefer to be called facilitators these days. And if you plan to murder some of your facilitators to show what a cold, evil villain you are, you'll probably want to spring for the full cutthroat coverage insurance. It'll cost you more per goon, but you'll avoid the damage fee when you return them to the lot. And while you're at their website, check out their samples of grandiloquent speeches to deliver before setting your gorillas on a job. Henchman and more is a total turnkey to go from cannon fodder to final fight boss. And thank you, Henchman and more, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hey, Craig. Hello. Good evening. Morning. I say good evening because <laughs> it's evening for us. Morning, midday to you out yeah, there. That's right. That's right. It's evergreen. So <laughs> I was speaking of evergreen. We're actually recording on the two-year anniversary of Gene Wolfe's death. We're two years on our own. Yeah. Evergreen. Ever. <laughs> okay. It's it's too early in the podcast for color symbolism. <laughs> Oh, I think that I think that maybe the uh, the hypnotic effects of your vaccine is taking it. <laughs> yeah, if I do lapse into insanity, it's <laughs> just a little bit after my second dose. Yeah. yeah. Well, we got a lot of comments about Severian in the in the caverns and the claw taken off the blue light chapter, and we got actually comments about. A lot of things. I don't. It's very hard to wrangle these comments uh, this time because everyone has a lot to say. They have a lot of good things to say. I'm mm-hmm. supposed to try and figure out how to get these comments to something under 45 minutes. And so here we go. On the Facebook group, Mike Benowitz, aka the artist known as Son of Wits, who uh, created our awesome logo, commented on our last episode for Chapter Six, Blue Light. He says, great episode, one of my favorite chapters, because as pointed out, we get some Tolkien meets Robert E. Howard Conan action with a sword and orcs in a mine. <laughs> he actually enjoyed my uh, Hamlet's Mill interpretation of this scene, which is heartening since I assumed everyone was just indulging me on that. <laughs> but I do believe it is real and it's foundational to Wolf's stories. I- I'm not winding my watch, so to speak. In fact, Mike says, the visual connection of the man-ape's blurry light at a distance to the Milky Way is great. The stars that emerge from that blur really seals the deal that Wolf intended that connection. Yeah, 
And Mike sees the man-apes as fitting into his foes of the increate hierarchy. I've linked mm-hmm. to the Facebook post where Mike detailed that connection uh, previously in, in a very long, nice post. And I also posted our interview with Mike, where he details that connection. I'm sure you've all seen that in your uh, podcast feed, if you've been following along. Hopefully that was a little bit familiar, because we have talked about it at least once before, and I feel like twice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I hope it made it even clearer at Mm -hmm. what he's getting at. But Mike says they are low in the hierarchy as to their position against the increate and literally that's because we're not into the mountains yet as quasi guardian soldiers kept underground for millennia they are sealed off from gods in servitude their station is not really their fault so they get humanized in severian's eyes when he sees them in the blue light they are guardians of the accumulated dead bs wealth of earth <laughs> Part of what needs to be washed away, a vision of Earth's future under a dead sun. Well, I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of course, I was curious about how they know about the claw so that they collapse in worship when Severian whips it out. And Mike says, I believe they see the claw and finally have a vision of something beyond their soul deadening mission. It's not a symbol of power to be obeyed, but one of renewal and healing, and not just a symbol, but a light that is actually healing. They seem to feel it as a breath of spiritual fresh air that their existence is deprived of. I think this is the healing light of the Logos, but we don't have to go there, he says. Well, why not, Mike? Why not go there, I ask? He also likes the idea of the first Severian descending into the pits and showing them the claw, just like Jesus descending into hell to preach to the captives and release them. Yeah. Yeah. And he goes on, I don't think it's truly a mine, or if it is, it's a mine that breached into an underground vault or bunker. I think this was like a bank or a munition storage or both and more. A later excavation may have found it. Perhaps time and geological movements sent a stream through it. James pointed out the stalactites. It, it could still be that this vault used a natural cavern, but also it's been so long, perhaps they formed there you know, after the vault was built. I don't know. I don't think it's truly abandoned mine. Some miners found it and cut the low ceiling section that he goes through before he can stand. Obviously, they would have gotten chased off before they could steal many ingots. It might even be a local custom dare to see if you can sneak in and grab an ingot before waking man-apes. Like us, he's curious about how the man-apes glow. Are they radioactive? Are they guarding radioactive materials, something else? Mike says, I think it's implied that their underground existence They have some source of radioactive energy other than the sun. It must be spiritually unhealthy as it leaves them with that sickly glow. Another great instance of a situation in these books with both scientific and spiritual explanations. I love this podcast, he says. Thanks, Mike. And thanks for listening and thanks for contributing and thanks for designing our awesome logo. I think that's a really cool catch. I still have a question on whether it's... I don't know, like, is the glow connected to the claw somehow? Like, is there something about him that's innocent? I don't know. I mean, it's because, I mean, he <laughs> does talk about how the, the light changes. Yeah. Well, right? it, so, it changes his view of them for sure. They look yeah. suddenly in that light, they look so much more human. One other thing I think is cool is how Mike puts it 
and his hierarchy of sort of opponents of Severian mm-hmm. and that these guys are low on the totem pole. What's also pretty interesting is how they convert to no longer being an opponent, right? Like right. Baldanders, maybe by the time we get to Earth, he's not in direct opposition to Severian anymore or something's changed. I mean, I don't I don't know how much Mike has thought about his hierarchy system, but but like when they're lower in the hierarchy, they're more likely to be saved or changed or or turned over. Whereas the higher up they get, the more it's almost like different foes. Yeah. I just that's one one thing when I was trying to think with the other people, did they were there other people who converted and or you know became allies when they started off as as foes? Yeah. And, well, how it's kind of funny. How would you put Agia? Because she's she becomes his i mean she's always his foe right mm-hmm. even when she becomes a Volari, she becomes a foe but she's yeah. actually working for him but i have made there's a spiritual lesson in that as well yeah well additionally scott aka a twinkie gorilla on reddit is engaged in a book club with aaron bj samantha and brendan i wonder <laughs> if scott could be the apple podcast reviewer latro again who mentioned that he had formed a book club inspired by oh, the podcast right. i don't know honestly i hope not i hope that there are lots of these on the other hand it would be heartening to know that that book club is still going on strong anyway scott and company are convinced the cave is an ancient nuclear storage facility and the ingots of silver are not that at all. They are nuclear fuel rods. And the radiation is responsible for the man-apes glowing and their evolution, devolution. And they have even more far-fetched ideas. He says, this gets me wondering about the claw itself insofar as answering the question of why the claw activates so powerfully and just as abruptly shuts down. Clearly, the claw healed Severian, but I will posit that it recognizes the radiation and sickliness of the man-apes, and for this reason shines so brightly, gathering the corpse light and dyeing it with the color of life. Now, Mm. as with anything wolf, this is just chasing after breadcrumbs. And we also tossed around ideas like, well, maybe this facility is used to produce claws, which is why the man-apes seem familiar with the item, or perhaps this facility was used for genetic engineering. But the nuclear facility remains the most compelling to me, and as always has that end-of-the-world implications, which thematically fits in nicely with the series. Man, so many ideas. Some of Mm -hmm. them, I don't know, suggest that for, at least for some of them, this is their first time reading. And if that's true, I envy you people. I'd have loved to have somebody decompress with me over this book for the first time I read it. Anyway, thank you, Scott, Aaron, BJ, Brendan, and Samantha, who will always in my mind be Dave D, Dozy Beaky, Mick, and Titch. So the great battle of Morwenna's trial has ended for now over what exactly happened with Morwenna's crime or not crime, what happened at her execution. But as these things go, the skirmishes do continue. And Craig, you were right. We managed to generate a true new sun consensus riff of the likes that only previously existed. 
on the Earth list. And Mantis actually uh, noted that too. He noted something very similar on the Rereading Wolf subreddit. See, I'm proud of that. So <laughs> I think we, by doing it, we upset Mark. That's all the only reason we were doing this. <laughs> That's okay, because he knows he still has the beeline on the truth. That's right. Well, he's always satisfied in that. So All that's... it does is make him seem like the great emancipator <laughs> when he comes back in later. <laughs> anyway, it was just so unexpected, so productive. And, you know, after all these years, my view of what happened at the plot level of Merwenda's execution has been completely subverted. I believed Eusebia killed herself after the execution. Now I'm quite positive Haythor killed her for whatever reason. Uh, Craig, I know you like to maintain an intellectual distance from these things, but I can't help but wanting to commit to one story or another until I'm proven wrong, I don't have a commitment about Agia or Hathor or Agalus. There are more coming up, but I usually, you know, I, I like to pick a side, and that's where I am now, 100%. Hathor killed Eusebia. I die on that hill until I'm convinced otherwise. I mean, I'm not a fanatic, so... Yeah, you seem to make more progress, actually, by, like, picking a story and sticking to it until something else mm -hmm. stronger comes yeah, yeah. I'm always trying to, like, you know, hold all my options <laughs> open and everything. And I don't know. I mean, it's it seems more careful, but I'm not sure I actually make as much No, progress. no, I'm like Severian rushing into that cave with the man age. Although, hello, I, Thakla, hello, hello, hello. <laughs> Although I do like the idea of kind of having one book with like five or six stories that it all could be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, my I, mind is like the Schrodinger's cat. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I had the idea of the, maybe we, maybe one way we could give away uh, Swanwick's books or Don Mate's uh, posters is that we could have a contest that people could uh, write little short stories about Agia's origin and uh, whoever can make the more offbeat story that actually brings in all of the connectivity, you know, the connecting tissue, that would be, yeah, that would be really great. I like that. I like that. Yeah. But the fight continues on the rereading Wolf Facebook link to Mark Aramini's rebuttal. And also on the Rereading Wolf Reddit link to chapter six of The Claw. It just goes on and on. Neil Smith, a.k.a. Sarkis Mage on Reddit. Neil at the cross. Suggests that the fight for the, a solution may be hopeless, and it is by design. He says, my opinion is that Wolf has left Morwenna's innocence or guilt intentionally indeterminate. This is supporting Wolf's overall theme of justice. He even has Severian proclaim that justice belongs to the pan creator alone. Mm -hmm. well, that's really good. Deeply considered. Check it out on the Reddit post for chapter six. He agrees with me that Jonas is picking up that Severian is not so certain of Morwenna's guilt. And I think Jonas has made his own guess about that, whether she's guilty or not. But Neil thinks that Quote, what's really bothering Severian is that he killed a woman. Severian continually has problems with women. He will mention several times after this that this is the only woman he personally executes. Right. And I think still that could have a lot to do with it, that this whole situation of killing Merwina is just reminding him of Thecla. And that I, I still think part of the reason why he has trouble over it and why he's maybe really interested in convincing himself that Merwina is guilty could be because this is making him sort of relive some things with Thecla and he wants to still 
feel like he's made the right decision. Yeah, he specifically uh, notes that she does look a lot like Thekla, although he, mm-hmm. he wants to point out, oh, well, you know, her hair is straight and Thekla's is wavy. So, mm-hmm. so uh, Neil is not so convinced by Mark's thematic heuristic. He sees a lot of innocent people punished in this book, like Thea's maid, or at the very least punished extremely unproportionally, which can be as bad, I agree, as punishing the innocent. He says, thematically, the idea that we cannot know if Morwenna was guilty fits in with Wolf's written words the best. Human justice is ultimately flawed. And he's intrigued by the idea that Hathor assassinated Eusebia. And to our question, did he choose to bring the poison to the execution just in order to poison her? He notes that Hathor is a sexual reprobate and would always have his aphrodisiac around. Remember, we Hmm. noted that the likelihood that this poison that he used would be the poison that Gerlos uses as a, uh, you know, as a Viagra at the Mm -hmm. tower. So no pre-plan was involved. He also speculates One wonders if overuse of such a drug would addle the mind, although there's no support for that in the text that I've found. As a motivation, he says, one thing that comes through in Hathor's wild speech, almost involuntarily, is his motivation for a twisted justice or revenge. While Hathor may be, must be, faking quite a bit as he follows Severian, I trust that the words Wolf gives him are in character, and therefore Hathor has a motivation for a twisted justice. Eusebius' confession next to him gives Hathor ample motivation and opportunity. Hmm, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. I think, didn't he grab her arm, though, before mm-hmm. she confesses? So yeah, I, I saw a suggestion about that, and I was thinking, maybe, maybe not. And then uh, Mike Farrar. Your arms from me. Posted a lengthy rebuttal to the Poisoner Hathor theory. He says, James seems like a kid with a shiny new toy with his <laughs> Hathor as Poisoner theory. And though I really hate to be the guy to pour cold water on it, Mike, why would anyone have to pour cold water on a kid with a shiny new toy? Why, Mike? Why? <laughs> He says, I'm going to do it anyway because I think I've thought of a Hathor theory he'll like even better. Uh-huh. Well, okay. Upgrade. Yeah. Well, most kids, you know, with a shiny new toy move on to play in the box it came in. But if you've got something better, Mike, <laughs> let's hear it. He says, I really want to talk about how I see Hathor as a twisted version of Severian. You floated the theory that Hathor could be a version of Severian, like where Hathor vaults onto the stage, torture-like, at the end of Shadow. And I think Hathor is Severian's id, or maybe his darkest impulses, separated from the new son Severian, much like Zadkiel separated off a little Zadkiel and left her at the Brook Madrigo. (laughs) This opposing twins theme repeats throughout the books, Severian and Baldi, Vodalus and the Autarch, Thea, Thecla, even the Megatherians and the Hierogrammatis. They seem like dark light twins, flip sides of the same coin. So here you have Hathor as the dark twin to the new sun, Conciliator as the light one. How this happens is at some unknown point in the narrative, maybe between Bria and Yesid. Sev spins off his dark urges. 
And he offers, you know, about a dozen events in Earth of the New Sun narrative where Severian might have separated off Hathor from himself. He says, after Hathor loses his paracoita and returns to Earth, he creeps on Agia as a girl he lusted after as a boy torturer, but, you know, never got on with. Then he finally wins her when Severian kills Agilis, and Hathor doesn't really want to successfully kill Severian because, you know, he keeps Agia on the hook. And anyway, since Severian is essentially him, he doesn't want to destroy him. He needs him to actually succeed in becoming the new son. So all Hathor's creatures, despite their incredible destructive potential, only drive Severian toward the ultimate goal of becoming the new son. Mike and I at least agree that Hathor is Agia's worst assassin. All he does <laughs> is save his life and drive him forward. Summing it up, Mike says he doesn't think Hathor would stoop to poison Eusebia. He doesn't see the motivation to that. Well, I agree that I don't see the motivation to that. But as I mentioned to someone on Reddit, if I read a story about some astronauts who find a 747 on Mars, the response is not, there's no good reason for a giant jet plane to be on Mars. I'm obviously supposed to use the story to understand why there's a 747 on Mars. Right. Thinking that way, I actually might, if if all that's true, there might be a way to make sense of it. So if Heather is like Severian's dark side, and let's just say for a moment, if we're let's stack some speculations here, but if Severian is wrong and Merwina is innocent, then Heather as Severian's altar in this case, it's weird that Heather might be saying like, I'm going to make this right and do the wrong, do the right thing by killing the actually guilty person. Um, but then taking justice into his own hands would kind of be again, the opposite of Severian at this point, because Severian's supposed to say, I, I don't deal in justice or justice is just from the pancreator. But Heather in that case, being the sort of vigilante saying, Nope, I'll kill this one. That is kind of like the opposite of Severian. Well, like Severian's lawful good and Hathor is chaotic good. Yeah. 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 There is a way to, in that scenario, that could be a motivation for it. I mean, it's, again, it's a lot of strings of hypotheticals down there, but I don't know. I still, I'm kind of interested in that idea of not just Hathor, but even other people, as we've talked about, potentially being offshoots of Severian. I mean, it goes a long way to figuring out why there are so many of those similarities that he points out with Heather, especially in that very first time he shows up. Like, why does he know so much about torture? Why is he obsessed with a woman just like Severian was? It's Thecla. I mean, there's so many things in that first chapter where he appears that mm -hmm. make him so identical in motivation and background to Severian. I'm somewhat intrigued by this idea. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah Mike's I, got me, uh, I'm convinced. Got me that, up. I'm convinced now that even if he's not some version of Severian, and actually, I believe that's kind of hard to pull off. He's got to be someone who grew up in the tower. I mean, he mentions that he vaults onto the stage. He knows a lot about torture. He's possibly carrying that stuff that Gurlos has on his shelf. Mm -hmm. Uh, the only thing that really still kind of hooks him to Severian is the fact that he is obsessed with this violet-eyed woman who has hands like doves. Yeah. So, well, um, anyway, Mike, like you and me, Craig, has questions about Hathor. He says, what I can't explain is how he also seems to be Korean and an astronaut of the First Empire. Well... 
the Korean part is interesting, Mike. I I asked him about that, and he said he encountered the idea that Hathor is Korean from Robert Borsky's book, Solar Labyrinth, and that Borsky credited Michael Andre Driussi. So, I don't know. He says, I want Hathor and Jonas to be from Zadkiel's ship rather than the First Empire ship, but there it is on the page. But here's his further origin story of Hathor. He says, this is after the events of Earth of the New Sun and the scene in Claw. He says, Apupunchao survives the age of myth in a variety of guises until the First Empire period and returns to the stars, perhaps seeking a return to Zadkiel's ship. It's clunky, but serviceable. Well, maybe. Uh, yeah, and speaking of which, uh, Neil Smith has some more questions about the man-apes. He says, on your opinion of whether the man-apes, who I see not just as Tolkien's orcs, but Tolkien's goblin men, half-breeds, how they would have known the claw and worship it. So very at one point muses that it's foolish to believe that you have to understand a symbol for it to have an effect on you. Things act on their own or not at all. And that's one of the times where Wolf is hinting how to read his book. And the claw is such a symbol. The man-apes don't need to have seen it before to worship it or understand it. It's going to work, or rather, Severian's power is, which is, as a symbol, the claw may be a subconscious focus for, all on its own. And here it's exerting a calming influence, which can be seen as healing and as a version of bringing the souls of these half-men back to life, which makes them behave less like animals. Yeah, I could buy that. I mean, there, there's a lot there. It's still, I still feel like it's a bit of a cheat to, to say that, but I think yeah. it also depends on how we are and how Wolf sort of conceives of the power of the claw. You know, like, is, right. is it just some kind of direct power that comes from Severian's thing that immediately grabs their attention and they feel it? Or, yeah, are they having some kind of more... I don't know, symbolic kind of recognition of what it is. And certainly it could be both. I mean, exactly as he says, there's so many times in these stories where Wolf is always at pains to say things mm-hmm. be spiritual and directly powerful all at the same time. Um, but yeah, it's just sort of a, a question of how do we see that work in practice? And I don't know, maybe I'm splitting hairs over thinking about the <laughs> difference there, but that's, that's what we do. Yeah. Well, by the way, he says, when the man-apes run from the larger noise, did anyone else catch the foreshadowing to the tale of the student and his son? You have a sound like an ogre, a sudden silt in the water. I know you're going to be happy about that. Ah, uh, yes. Yes. Yes, Neil. I've noticed. But we have to wait about five months before I can talk about that. <laughs> Honestly, I hadn't until just until he said that. I hadn't, I hadn't remembered the silt. Which plays yeah. such a big point, but yeah. Also, Michael Andre Drisi on Reddit. He says, new topic. Are man apes evolved or engineer? Here Severian seems to imply that they evolved by long time under Earth, which sort of suggests that they were living underground, orcs, morlocks, etc., until the saltus miners broke through into their world. That is, they are native. Then again, the other beastmen were engineered. So maybe the man-apes were brought in by the autark when the mine became autarkial. 
Mm-hmm. Actually, I think um, Jonas is going to discuss both of those possibilities. Yeah. He's not 100% sure. He says, uh, new topic, do the man-apes flee toward the sound? I mean, I know Severian writes that, but he also notes that when he flees, he goes outside. The puzzle remains. And as you note, what is the relationship between the man-apes and the Balrog downstairs? Are they serving it or keeping it pinned in? Good point about the orc and the Balrog in that they occupy separate niches. But again, does one really flee toward danger? Building upon the thought above, maybe the man-apes were only brought in when the miners accidentally broke through to the Balrog's lair. Well, that's a lot of questions, Mm -hmm. Michael. Yeah. (laughs) And not a lot of answers. Just to start with the (laughs) Tolkien thing, when the Balrog finally wakes up, the orcs scatter and they run away, but they all run away to their hiding holes, right? Right. They don't run out the same way that Gandalf and the party go. Uh, or try to go. They all sort of scatter to the winds. If there are winds in Moria, I guess not. But, um, <laughs> sorry, metaphors are getting away from me. But that is an interesting question. Again, sort of bringing up Severian's perspective. Like he sees them as just fleeing in terror because that's what he wants to do. But yeah, maybe they're running back. I mean, who knows? Maybe the reason this thing is able to start making noise and get loose is because the man apes left their stations or jobs or whatever it was i mean and now they have to run back it could be could be yeah we don't know well let's see we've got people talking about other things as well really? as is our want <laughs> <laughs> uh chris sanicor thought that the scene with the alcalde forgetting his lines was darkly funny mm-hmm. he says i think that's good wolf humor and that we overlook in this dark world that he's created you know how funny he can be yeah, you know, Greg, like we've said, sometimes because of the way we approach this book on this podcast, we can miss pointing out how funny mm-hmm. the scenes are taken as a whole yeah. and they're intended to be. It's, you know, it's like a dissecting a knock-knock joke. But why <laughs> did they knock? Is there no doorbell? Let's examine <laughs> the doorbell and when it was invented versus the first relation of this uh, story in this joke. <laughs> So on the Gene Wolf Appreciation Society Facebook group, Brent Dunn listened to Mark Aramini's uh, prosecution of Marwenna, and he opened a side conversation about Gene Wolf's correspondence with Mark that he had shared in that episode. And it was about Wolf's perspective on justice and punishment. Incidentally, Craig, have I mentioned how happy it makes me when people take our petty fights other forums like <laughs> the Facebook GWAS or the Gene Wolf subreddit. Anyway, I'm linking to Brent Dunn's post in Facebook. It's a private group now, so you'll have to join to see it, but check it out. It's illuminating. <laughs> Recent new listener, Nudis Magrudis, probably his actual Christian name. He joined Facebook just to talk to us. We contacted Mark Zuckerberg about this and his check is in the mail. So Nudis is thinking about Agia and Agalus. He, I believe Nudis is the male form of that name, right? He seems to have got as far as Agalus's execution at least. Now, Nudis has some speculation about Agia being Hathor's paracoita. And by the time he hears this, no doubt, he'll come to know that, you know, because she has brown eyes and not violet eyes, she probably isn't the Scopolagna. (laughs) And he also knows by now that I've decided she's not Asian. 
but a country girl, you know, descended from some Atakthan tribe north of Nessus. But he has some ideas about Agia and Agilis and Hathor. And he says, has anyone ever posited the theory that the twins have been summoned by Hathor with his scrap of demon haunted sail? I don't believe so, Nudis. Do tell. He says, Hathor uses the mirror sail in the manner Father Aniri describes, reflection first to create the desired object via paradox. He starts with Aglas, who is the slightly altered reflection of his object, Agia, who in this case is literally made the object of desire by Hathor. This could explain the confusing nature of the relationship Hathor has with Agia, as well as her apparent comfort with all manner of sexual impropriety. Agia, Agilis aren't typical twins because they aren't biological twins. They are more like cognate twins born of the mirrors. It's a stretch, admittedly, but I'm quite taken with this theory because it leads me to the idea of Hathor plucking the entire retinue from his scrap of mirror sail. It's possible that Hathor is doing with Agia and Agilis what Ineri is rumored to have done with Damnina, namely absconding with a person from another where-when with the mirror technology. Consider the fact that Wolf describes their facial similarity as being like a mirror. Fine for a lesser author, but I find it hard to believe Wolf would settle for the easiest possible description of actual twins. I think the mirror line is meant to evoke the mirror sails upon rereading and therefore to connect them to the ships of the Age of Empire. I love this construction, Craig, because it connects the twins with the mirrors with Hathor. That is very appealing to me. And to steal from John Crowley, if it's not this, it's something like this. <laughs> I like that. I I think it just, yeah, it takes, especially the way it takes that one mirror phrase and connects it mm-hmm. to things. Yeah, that's impressive. Well, I'm going to be curious, you know, by the time he hears this episode, what further ideas he has about Agia. Perhaps he'll reconvince me that Agia is Asian or that she is Hathor's paracoita. Um, didn't somebody talk about Agalus not taking off the mask when Severian meets him and it actually um, that he was putting, putting, it, putting his mask back on? Mm-hmm. I couldn't find that. Do you know where that is? Oh, maybe if we talked about it, then, I mean, you edit it so you will know. Didn't we talk about that in the comments? Did time? we talk about it in the comments last week? I think we did. Um, yeah, but I was thinking about that. And I, I, and I still like that. I like that more and more. Because it explains why he's wearing a ghoul's mask at the beginning uh, when Severian first meets him. Yeah. And then he says, oh, you're still wearing a mask. Well, no, he, the thing is he, he put on his mask. I don't know what to say, say of that. But um, the reason I was thinking that is that, you know, I've been saying, mentioning that I see signs that, that Agia is a witch. Mm-hmm. But also there's this one scene where... Um, you know, Severian, after he's at the witches in the stone town, he wakes up and he picks up a pelerine's cloak mm-hmm. lying on the ground. And then he mentions that to a pelerine later and he says, Are, do the pelerines do necromancy? And then he gets interrupted. <laughs> and we never find out the end of that. It's a good point. I had forgotten that. Oh, wow. So 
more and more. But necromancy, what if he is a dead body? But then why would she be, you know, maybe she brought, maybe he was the next old lover and she resurrected him. I don't know. I'm falling down another Agia path. <laughs> they multiply like reflection. I know. Every time the further mirrors. we go, we get another, <laughs> <laughs> we get another possible link. Every time I shut, I shut one down and they send me another. So <laughs> now let's see. Uh, also, some idiot broke into our Patreon account while I was on vacation and posted an article about the solar cycle reading order and a summary of the timeline of the first Severian as Malrubius. And hmm. you were kind enough to post those elsewhere, too. <laughs> yeah. We weren't keeping it behind our special Patreon. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I'm going to let my freak flag fly. <laughs> While I was sitting late at night out in the mountains of Colorado, I was perusing Reddit and people started to what, you know, that's a very common question. What should I, I've just read Book of the New Sun. What should I read next? I said, okay, okay. Here's what you should read <laughs> if you want to continue to read the Book of the New Sun world. And then someone says, what's the deal with Marubius? And someone says, well, you know, he's kind of a, reminds me a lot like Pike. And I said, in the, the book of the long sun, I said, oh, yes, there's a lot of, he's a lot like Pike, a lot like Pike. And we'll get to that when we get to the long sun one day. And um, so then I said, well, I'll just, while I sit here in the airport, I'll just type in my, uh, my summary. But anyway, I put a link to it in the show notes and you should check it out. Maybe if you want to get mad <laughs> on Reddit, uh, the Stavarkian responded to the uh, Marubius as the first Severian uh, timeline. And he says, I loved it and completely disagreed with it. Please don't stop. <laughs> and Snorlax, a.k.a. on Reddit, Larawin, wasn't having it. He says that it's, quote, all admirably good-natured hogwash <laughs> smile. <laughs> he says, to me, it's actually quite straightforward. Zadkiel knows that in order to bring the new sun, it's necessary for someone to be able to pull the trigger and execute Earth. Pretty much no one can actually do this. So the heroes look for someone with the necessary qualifications. They find a bright boy with an eidetic memory who is being raised to obey. For Unfortunately, he drowns the skull in the Earth of the New Sun that Severian speculates. That's Severian. So the walkers keep tweaking things to help him until they can finally succeed in the rogue-like speed run <laughs> all the way to Yesit. To me, that is the test. It's an almost open book test with all the help he can get. I love the roguelike. Yeah. <laughs> that is so perfect. If you don't know video games, then yeah, we're not talking about like rogue like D&D, but rogue game where right. you start it's permadeath and then you run through the whole thing again and then you yeah see how far you can right 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 you keep just keep grinding yep. it yeah so he says there have been many severians each getting a bit farther and then each failing in some way until we hit our narrator all the other timelines end with master ash's world don't get me wrong Unhinged speculation is a good time, but for me, this stuff gets a little too close to Varus is a merman level theory crafting. <laughs> I had to look that but, one up, by the way. <laughs> is there uh, is there also actually Varus is a merman theory? Yes, there is a whole little sort of mini 
controversy about that, about whether that was a, <laughs> a silly idea or whether it was to be taken seriously or not. Well, that tends to be the discussions around my theories. So, <laughs> but David Stockton said, I don't see James's and Snorlax, Larrowin's models as incompatible. They seem to vary only in the number of Severians, and otherwise, James's model is more or less a step-by-step execution of Snorlax's excellent summary. And when you examine them from the perspective of the work required from the author in each case, James's stuff is actually simpler. Sure, you could argue that each time Severian's memory betrays him, he's influenced by a different Severian number. But then why do the Severians collapse so easily into one? And does it matter? How would Wolf even have tracked them all without an Excel spreadsheet? <laughs> James's model explains the theme and function of all the doublings and twinnings and double takes, the sisters, the idolins, the old master, the young apprentice, Owen and Sev, Dorcas and Dorcas, maybe even Agalus. They are telling us something. Everyone is always also someone else. And it's not just Severian and his multitudes who have other or past twinned identities. Well, thank you, Mr. Stockton. (laughs) He reads the Facebook posts and patron posts, but he doesn't listen to this podcast, so he won't hear that. Thank you. (laughs) I'll only say that I think Laura Wen, his model only adds to the sort of questions that I'm trying to resolve. If the heroes can fix the game so completely, why do they offer the opportunity to Emar or the old Autark? Why put them through that and then castrate them for all their trouble? Why not just use Emar to begin with? Why not Baldanders? He'd probably relish the opportunity to wipe out Earth. Why does Aniri have to convince his bosses that this universe iteration is worth the trouble at all? As for, you know, like, is Varius a mermaid? Well, one, Unlike Varys is a secret mermaid, this does affect the story, I think. And two, I, well, I deliberately left out all the evidence uh, that proved what I was saying was true. And I tapped it into my phone at the airport. I, I didn't just build that timeline from, you know, wouldn't it be cool if... I, I admit that I, you know, I haven't published the proofs yet, and the pudding is in the proofs, as no one says. So I honestly... <laughs> You know, I deserve Larwin's characterization. I started from the acceptance that there was a first Severian, a particular fellow, because, you know, that's how Severian describes him, whose life was similar but different in distinct ways. And I just, you know, followed my nose from there. That's all I'm saying. The big question, though, about why do they focus on Severian so much instead of, yeah, Ymar or the old Autark? That's actually a good question, though, in terms of sort of trying to figure out what's going on. And that that's a question I think that matters no matter what you think of first Severian. I mean, I feel like something in this book says there has to be something about Severian who repeats things. I mean, the very first line is I, I had some presentiment of my future, right? Like mm-hmm. it's already like either I lived this before or there's some pattern playing out or something. But yeah, the relationship there between why Severian and not these other people who have tried. It's an important question. Yeah. Well, even Severian brings that up as a problem, right? In his memory work, because he says, so he talks about the first Severian and how his life was different. But then he says, but you know, there's always the issue. Why didn't the first Severian drown? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. and then and he repeats, I didn't I tell you that I had some presentiment of my future. Yeah. yeah. 
So on Reddit, Eurobubba has a question about my Rubius for Severian. I still love that name. <laughs> Every time we hear that, we say it or I see it. I'm like, <laughs> it does make me very happy to read that. But he has a question about my Rubius for Severian. He says, I have to wonder why the torturers would have allowed First Severian Marubius to become a master if he hadn't spent his life in the guild all along, unless he just forced them to by his authority as Autark, like some mad Roman emperor. <laughs> well, you know, first of all, he has spent his life, his childhood in the tower, and he was elevated to journeyman. Palamon was also exiled for a time and returned to be a master. Uh, secondly, he is the Autark, which he could prove by walking over to the Great Keep and using the words of command. But even without that, our Severian pretty much takes over the tower before there is an Autark in Earth of the New Sun, and it doesn't feel like much of an obstacle mm -hmm. for him. Also, you know, they only made him the Master of the Apprentices, which frankly sounds like a made-up title, since, uh, you know, I thought they already had a boss of the Apprentices, and that was Severian. <laughs> they had a kid doing that job. Um, let's see. We had a bunch of new patrons. Sienna, Michael Grubb, Brian Lieb, and David Stockton joined at the journeyman level. Thank you both, even though David Stockton will never hear this. <laughs> and at the master level, we have Robert McCarthy, McCarthy. Jeffrey Greek, Ian C. Smith, I, I, Mr. Smith. And a special someone who has requested not to get a shout out, but we're sending waves of gratitude in that person's direction. Also at the master level, hmm, looks like a foreign name. Al Zabo Suop. <laughs> Little Red Riding Hood. Even bad wolves can be good. Oh, it's Phil and Matt's of Al Zabo Soup. The old grandfather of Dean Wolf <laughs> podcasting, who are currently winding their way through the Book of the Long Sun. Now that is special. Thanks, guys. Your blessing really means a lot. And that was really nice. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Yeah. But that pronunciation of Alzabo, that's on your conscience. <laughs> so, James L. Stewart says that he's still catching up with us, but he says that the story and discussion so far has him thinking about Oscar Wilde's poem, reading jail he says yet each man kills the thing he loves by each let this be heard some do it with a bitter look some with a flattering word the coward does it with a kiss the brave man with a sword excellent well craig we're done fighting man apes and severian is running out of the cavern so you know the worst is behind him no more perils for Severian. None at all. Yeah, I can't imagine what trouble he could possibly find himself in. Nothing but pastoral safety from here on out. Yeah. I say, what's the name of this chapter again? Chapter 7, The Assassins. All right, so it's now the night of the single day We've been on since this volume started. If Severian left the tower on Sunday, I think it's either Friday or Saturday night. He's watched them exhume Barnock, chased Agia through the fair, talked religion to a tea lady, asked the green man from the future if he'll ever see Agia again. The green man has helpfully told him that he and Agia would meet again above ground. Boy, those green men are 
a terrific resource, Craig. <laughs> it's not always conveyed in Severian's tone, but despite he and Dorcas being an item, he is still seriously obsessed with Agia. Mm-hmm. Nothing in their time together or anything afterward explains the degree to which Agia is special to him. He said he fell hard for her despite her not really being that much of a looker. Yes, he's you know prone to follow lust wherever it leads, but Agia is the only member of his little harem whose relationship was, I think, never consummated. And he was with her for one day. Despite her trying to kill him, he can't keep the fact of her malevolence in mind from moment to moment. And if he can, that fact just never seems to, you know, land. Mm-hmm. He might understand it intellectually, but not in his heart. So anyway, after executing Morwenna, Severian is having supper as Jonas pretends to eat and gets the forged letter from Thecla telling him to meet in a mine. The letter written by Agia as bait. Severian goes there, climbs up a waterfall to get to the mine, encounters a civilization of glowing man-apes. He chops them up in a fight. They overwhelm him. The claw goes off. The apes fall to their knees in worship. Severian flees for the entrance of the mine. And here we are. So let's go. And, you know, why not? The entire next chapter covers no more than a few minutes. So running out of the tunnel feels to Severian like it took more than an hour. And this is from Severian, who presumably can actually replay the event from memory. And Severian tells us that he's always been a little on edge. He's always had a nervous personality. He says, my nerves have never been fully sound, tormented as they have always been by a relentless memory. (laughs) Thanks for the reminder, Severian. (laughs) Yeah. And but it's also cool because now he's really talking about it as something that has always disturbed him, which most of the times in shadow when it comes up, it's a brag, even if it's going to be a humble brag of, you know, I'm always kind of bothered by this. But now he's really saying that it has always kept him on edge. Yeah. And that's um, a different tone to his feeling about that memory than I think we've gotten because before it's always been, you know, here's my special power Mm -hmm. kind of thing. But now he's really saying that it can be a burden and even a, even a really, not just a bothersome burden, but actually something that puts him, yeah, puts yeah. breaks him down. Yeah. But as you've mentioned, we, we sometimes forget or forget to note that Wolf can be dryly funny. You know, we, we forget because of the way we go through the story, mm-hmm. but I can imagine Gene Wolf chuckling as he wrote that yeah. line. Yeah. It's like, here's a way to get a brag in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because of my relentless memory. Also, Agia doesn't detect that Severian is particularly nervous appearing person. Yeah, She said that he seems like a pretty cool cucumber. Mm-hmm. But Severian says, you want to read that? My nerves have never been fully sound, tormented as they've always been by a relentless memory. Then they were keyed to the highest pitch so that to take three strides seemed to exhaust a lifetime. I was frightened, of course. I've never been called a coward since I was a small boy and on certain occasions, various persons have commented on my courage. I performed my duties as a member of the guild without flinching, fought both privately and in war, climbed crags, and several times nearly drowned. But I believe there's no other difference between those who are called courageous and those who are branded craven than that the second are fearful before the danger and the first after it. Hmm. 
I wonder then if Severian's courage and his continuous cluelessness are somehow related. <laughs> but it's it's kind of interesting how this starts because here he he starts off and he talks about how his memory always bothers him and keeps him on edge, which I, I kind of, I mean, the way that he'll talk about that later is that it can distract him. And that's exactly what happens here. Like he's in the middle of saying, I was so on edge and nervous about what was going on as I left this. And, and that makes me think about being on edge. And that makes me think about the times when people used to call me a coward, but of course no one ever <laughs> calls me a coward now. And yeah, so let's, let's just have a little discursus on courage for a second. I mean, it's totally like within this first chapter, you pull so away from what's going on. I mean, it's yeah. like massive digression, which we were talking in an earlier episode about style and, and sort of wolf style. I mean, this is the kind of thing that I can see this paragraph just driving a teacher crazy and being like, <laughs> what are you focus on something? Yeah. And instead, no, it's specifically to point out what Severian does all the time. Right. And yeah, there's stuff built through all here. There's the brags. There's the way to talk about courage and the way he's always been courageous. But even though sometimes I wasn't when that was a kid, but that was a long time ago. And um, yeah, there's a lot going on here. Yeah. Yeah. And so he gives a little dissertation on bravery and cowardice. And the thing is that Severian is not so sure that cowardice or bravery, as he defines those terms, are necessarily good and bad things. No one can be much frightened, certainly, during a period of great and imminent peril. The mind is too much concentrated on the thing itself, and on the actions necessary to meet or avoid it. The coward is a coward, then, because he's brought his fear with him. Persons we think cowardly will sometimes amaze us by their bravery, if they've had no forewarning of their danger. And so next we get an interesting, I think, assessment of Gerlo as a coward. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to remember how Severian is defining cowardice and bravery here. Cowardice is being fearful of an event before it happens. Bravery is being fearful after it. That's how you're brave, because you look back on it and you say, wow, I could have been killed, but I didn't flinch. That was brave. But a coward looks forward to the event and says, I can be killed. So the example of Gerlo is peculiar. And the assessment of why it was cowardice is peculiar, but as Severian openly states, he thinks cowardice in the correct context can be a good thing, and courage, as he defines it, can be a shameful thing. But for a first-time reader, you're reading all this and you're saying, where is Severian headed? Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, it's just... it's. It's wacky. I mean, it's just really <laughs> weird. And I remember I had that again as I was rereading it. I was like, oh, yeah, this is the one where I didn't remember why was Gerlo's a coward here? And right. why is this the perfect example of this? Yeah. So, so yeah, he says, Master Gerlo's, whom I had supposed to be of the most dauntless courage when I was a boy, was unquestionably a coward during the period when Drott was captain of apprentices. And so this event he's going to describe is some months before the first chapter of Shadow of the Torturer, before the drowning and the meeting of Bodilus, but no more than that, not, not like a year earlier, just a few months. Roach and I used to alternate, turn and turn about, in serving Master Gerlos and Master Palamon. And one night, when Master Gerlos had retired to his cabin, but instructed me to stay to fill his cup for him, he began to confide in me. Lad, do you know the client Ia, an armager's daughter and quite good-looking? As an apprentice, I had had few dealings with clients. I shook my head. She is to be abused. I had no idea what he meant, so I said, yes, master. 
what that meant was that part of her punishment was that she was to be raped before being executed. Gerlos says it is the greatest disgrace that can befall a woman or a man to be raped by their torturer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've probably mentioned that Gerlo is barrel-chested. I can't remember us mentioning that it made him look like he had a tiny head. It's very said that if he had worn a shirt or jacket, people would think it was padded. But he never does because, you know, he's a master torturer. He also mentions that Gerlo could walk well and speak clearly when he was very drunk. And Severian is just saying, you know, yes, master to everything. And that's the safest thing to do. Then Gerlo says, aren't you going to offer to do it for me? A young fellow like you, full of juice. Don't tell me you're <laughs> not hairy yet. That is, I think, uh, you know, you've reached puberty. You were probably anxious to do it. As only now does Severian understand what Gerlo is talking about, what the job is. I was wondering if that full of juice line, like, is that some weird Midwestern thing I've never heard before? <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> but again, you know, Severian gives the safe answer. I didn't know it was allowed for apprentices, but if you're telling me to do it, I will. And Gerlo says, I bet you would. Then Gerlo drunkenly rambles on. She's not bad looking, you know, but tall. I don't like them tall. There's an exultant bastard in that family a generation or so back. You may be sure. Blood will confess itself, as they say, though only we know what that means. And you know, I guess he means by that that people don't really tell the truth until they're tortured. Yeah, but it's a weird line. Like that mm-hmm. was one. I mean, I got a little question mark by it because I was really trying to work it out. And that's that's what makes sense. I mean, that that only when they're under duress does your your true nature show up. But the fact that he's talking about it here with uh, actual blood in the sense of like actually racial types of mm-hmm. things um, that just gave it a different tone. I don't know, but I, I it just seemed like an odd line, and it still kind of confuses me. Um, unless it really is just, yeah, the, you know, people won't tell the truth until yeah. they really face reality and the tortures bring reality. Yeah. So uh, there's a couple more things here. One is that the torturer isn't supposed to enjoy the act of torture. That's what makes them special. Like, dislike, it's irrelevant. Torturers obey. But the fact is that Gerlo dislikes this job a great deal. And he's trying to talk himself up to the task, Right. He comes off as the most ruthless torturer in the tower. He seems to oversee all the actual excruciations. Those official duties are killing him, and we can see the cracks beginning to show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Grillo's is the one, we have to recall, who Severian gave that really cool discussion of before about how basically he was saying how the weight of all this was really just eating at him because mm-hmm. he was he was really a good man at heart he thought and so having to do all these things was was just tearing him apart and right. that, that leads to the drinking and the the weird reveries and all that kind of stuff right and then this the statement by gerlo is frequently referenced as a hint that severian himself has exultant blood because he's mm. tall yeah. it's frequently mentioned the, the autark pimp at house azure said that he seemed to have exultant blood. Mm-hmm. And since I now believe that Severian's mother was a runaway Kybit and the Kybits are clones of the exultants, yeah, it all fits together now. And for me, since I believe Severian's mother is in the Autark, that he fell in love with her and ate her, well then, you know, the Autark would know. Mm-hmm. And I'll also note that Valeria 
is also of the armature class. And I've theorized that she could be Severian's twin. Obviously, I'm not saying the armature's daughter is Valeria, but the principle is established that class and heritage are not necessarily the same thing. Right. Ultimately, Gurlo says, want to do it? I think he's actually toying with the idea of having Severian do this so he doesn't have to. He knows it's not allowed, but, you know, he's drunk and the idea has appeal, even though it would surely screw this kid up for life. So Severian refills Gurlo's cup and he says, if you wish me to, Master, like I said, he's, that's the thing to say. But Severian confesses that Gurlo was right about it. He was secretly thrilled at the idea. He had never had sex at this point. But, you know, hope stashed. Just one other point to note here that they never even suggest that the boys go find a girlfriend, right? It's yeah. always like, <laughs> it's either this or I'll take you to the brothel, right? right? Yeah. That's, you know, that's sort of showing again how their their upbringing is really skewed, that they just never have any real interaction with women. Oh, well, you can always go to the witches. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But then Gurlos tells him, um, you can't, I must. What if I were to be questioned? Then too, I must certify it, sign the papers. A master of the guild for 20 years and I've never falsified papers. I suppose you think I can't do it. Severian never considered the question one way or the other. But we get a description of the way Severian thinks of Palamon. So yeah, he says that um, Palamon, whose white hair, stooped shoulders, and peering lens made him seem like one who had been decrepit always. Uh, Gurlo assures him it's really no problem. He gets up, he pulls down a blue porcelain jar. He says it contains, quote, a rare and potent drug. It's a dark brown powder. He explains that you only take as much as you can get under your fingernail. You extract it with a knife. You can't take too much or else, quote, you won't be able to appear in public for a couple of days. As we know from Viagra and Cialis commercials, this is known as priapism, <laughs> where you stay erect and you won't go down. I guess this stuff is all that remains of those companies. Right? More than four hours. That's yeah. what I <laughs> So you consult a doctor. <laughs> Gurlo tells Severian, you'll have to use it someday, so you ought to know about it. Severian says, I'll remember, Master. Then Gurlo says, of course, it's a poison. They all are, and this is the best. A little more than that would kill you, and you mustn't take it again for a month. And this makes Severian nervous for Gurlo, given his state at the moment. He suggests that Gurlo have brother Corbinian, the tower pharmacist, weigh the dose for him. He can actually imagine Gurlo swallowing a whole spoonful right there. And by the way, this is just a total aside thing, but the fact that the tower has um, an apothecary and then he mentions brother cook as well. Right. So I, you know, it, it never really clicked to me that maybe there are other people like just professionals or of some kind working in the tower as well. Like I'd always thought of it as just the torturers, but yeah, I guess there actually is some support staff. Yeah, well, well? The, maybe maybe the journeymen have specific duties. Though. That's what I was yeah, wondering. Like, like, are that. they journeymen? Is he talking about journeymen or is he or are these other people? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I, I can't imagine they would have anyone but a an actual torturer inside the tower. So he met, and this is again, this is totally off the chapter, but um, he mentions Brother Cook and, and Brother Corbinia. Like, is that are there? But he never talks about Draught and Roche as Brother Draught or Brother. Yeah. Yeah, they must, but 
maybe, you know, maybe that's because they're friends, but yeah, you know, maybe perhaps he, he actually does refer to them as brother, this or brother, that brother. Severian. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, just, yeah. Lore questions. So when Severian says, well, maybe you should have Corbinian measure the dose. He says, me, I don't need it. And he puts it away. Uh, There's a pattern here. Gurlo getting out the tools to perform this act without being aroused by it. Tools that he's very familiar with. And then getting drunk angry at the idea that he can't get it up like a real man in order to do the deed. He is, as Severian has said before, a complicated man. A man who wants to do the right thing. The right thing as a torturer defines the right thing. But he's also a man who innately recognizes that the act he's continually asked to perform is not the right thing. And he wavers between the sense that he should be doing this job with pride, which he can't quite accomplish, and doing it feeling nothing, which he also can't quite accomplish. Severian says, okay, you don't need the Viagra powder. That's well, master. And Gerlo winks and says, besides, I have this. And he pulls from his sabertash, his fanny pack that all the torturers seem to carry. He pulls out an iron phallus about as long and half again as an open hand. And it went through a leather thong. And at first, Severian can't make out what it is or what it's for, even though, you know, it was formed with what Severian calls exaggerated realism. (laughs) And Gerlo smacks the phallus into his palm, just the way that the man ape in the last chapter smacked the mace into his palm. Also, in a bit, Severian calls Terminus as his own iron phallus, which is what is called getting ahead of the audience. Literary <laughs> critics are always going to say forever that Severian's sword is a phallic symbol, and he might as well do it first so he can be in on the joke. If only he'd remembered that when he was relating that sex scene with Dorcas, with all those references about impaling her. Mm-hmm. So Gerlos says, abuse, that's their word, you see. They've left us an out. Which is to say, you know, it doesn't technically have to be rape, but as long as the abuse is like rape for the victim. So he can wear this and attack her with it as if it were. As soon as young Severian realizes how the object will be used, he's, quote, gripped by revulsion. But looking back on it, if the rape happened in front of him, he doesn't think he'd feel revulsion. Severian says that Standing in Gerlo's office, he didn't, quote, sympathize with the victim. The client was irrelevant. His revulsion was at imagining Gerlo needing these tools to get an erection, needing the brown powder or just dispensing with the erection altogether and using the phallus. That would be weakness. Severian's revulsion was at Gerlo feeling revulsion about the act. And in the moment, Gerlo would not need these things. In the moment, whatever fear or loathing Gerlo had imagining the event melted away when necessary. Severian had seen him on another occasion, and I assume sometime after this meeting, when the thing had to be done immediately because the client was about to die, act at once and without the powder or the phallus and without difficulty. So this is the difference, right? Severian looks at Gerlo like a coward because mm-hmm. he's revolted by the idea of rape. Severian, I guess, afterwards would think about it and feel regret because he's brave. 
So yeah, so apply this to the battlefield. Gurlo is the man who suffers before the battle, but when he's put to it, he does his duty without hesitation. He's no different in that moment than the soldier who slept like a baby the night before, but suffers PSTD later. Remember that Gene Wolfe confessed to suffering from what today would be diagnosed as PTSD. So Gurlo is the coward. Severian is brave because he never worries about the events beforehand. Only afterward, as he replays the events in his mind, does it make him a nervous wreck. So he says, Master Gurlo's was a coward then. Still, perhaps his cowardice was better than the courage I would have possessed in his position. For courage is not always a virtue. I'd been courageous, as such things are counted, when I'd fought the man-apes, but my courage was no more than a mixture of foolhardiness, surprise, and desperation. Which is pretty much a description of the character Severian in this mm-hmm. book. Yeah. yeah, Gurlo is not a coward because he feared for his well-being in the rape of the woman. He was fearful at having to do the act itself and fearful that his revulsion would make him unable to follow through. And Severian is trying to convey that his cowardice, so-called, demonstrated his own innate honor and character. His cowardice was a virtue, whereas Severian might have never considered whether the act was good or bad and only regretted it later. His courage was a vice. Yeah, and it's it, it's a really interesting way to flip all those things around. Mm-hmm. And um, and of course, we're going to talk about here in a second what that has to do with what Severian's going through right. right now. But yeah, I mean, this part really, to me, pays off for Gurlow's and, mm-hmm. and why he's here as a character, because this... It's a pretty cool way. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that Wolf's mixing up here. I mean, sort of general morality, personal sort of virtue sense of of morality, uh, moral development of people at different ages and sort of the effect of all this stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. this is, I mean, I've, I've had to teach like intro to ethics classes before, <laughs> and I so wish there's some way I could have had this passage in there because it just brings up so many questions. Um, and also, honestly, which is one thing that, is slightly disturbing about it, but is also really interesting is that he does all that with ever really straightforwardly saying it, <laughs> saying it. And, but, but also straightforwardly sort of talking about what we would think of as, as rape itself being such a horrible thing. Like that's, that's there, but it's not really, it's not what the payoff is. Yeah. Um, because Severian it, doesn't recognize right, it. He can't Severian, feel it. Yeah. And that also maybe gets back to the, the idea of, Severian having grown up all around men, like there was just no mm-hmm. real sense of that, even though they're around victims all the time, they just, they don't really see it anymore. So there's yeah. that, that blindness and that sort of offhandedly not even really recognizing the crime itself. Uh, that speaks a lot to, to sort of the upbringing that these mm-hmm. guys had and how far they have to come in order to actually be better. You know, Right. Yeah. It's such a, such a strange passage. And yet, when you kind of put it all together and you think about it, that's, it's really complicated and clever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the story of Gurlo talking about this horrific act that he's going to do, this could have gone so wrong. Yeah. And I remember there was, this is like a year or so ago, but there was some Reddit thread about this. And I remember it got, it was sort of one of those frustrating conversations about Wolf and, and gender where it's like there were a lot of people just saying, well, why did he have to choose rape to do it? And, and that was the the thing, which I, I get. But at the same time, there's there was no real discussion of all the 
complexity about this, about what what right. goes into why people are blind to certain things or all the difficult mess that comes in with doing making right. moral choices. Yeah. Just really, really fascinating passage. So so now we're going to get back to. <laughs> so now in the tunnel, when there was no longer any cause for fear, I was afraid and nearly dashed my brains out against the low ceiling. But I didn't pause or even slacken speed before I saw the opening before me, made visible by the blessed sheen of moonlight. As soon as he's out of the passage and in the open air of the moonlight, he wiped his sword with the ragged edge of his cloak. Apparently, torturer's cloaks are not finished. They aren't hemmed. They're just cut material sewn together. Then he puts the sword in its sheath. Was it, was it that or was it that it's just started to have gone through a lot by this point. Yeah. I just, well, how much has he gone through? He's only been out a week. I guess it's true. Um, so he puts the sword in its sheath, slings the sheath over his shoulder and rock climbs down the way he came. He refers to his boots as sodden. They're soaking wet from standing in the stream. He feels for the ledges and steps down. He calls this stuff. He's climbing down an ancient work. So he has no delusion that this is natural rock. He's climbing down. Mm -hmm. Then a second time he feels, you know, around for more and steps down. And then he steps down a third time and suddenly two quarrels hit the rock near his head. A quarrel is a short, heavy bolt with a square shaped tip. It's used in crossbows. In this case, his attackers are using a type of heavy crossbow called an arbalist. And what is an arbalist? Well, Arbalist crossbows started being used in the 1100s. They fired heavier bolts with much more force so the bolts could fly farther and hit like a bullet with almost, you know, 5,000 pounds of force or 2,200 kilograms. It took an experienced user about two minutes to ready it for the next bolt. Since the two bolts strike at once, Severian knows that he's under assault by at least two attackers. And these bolts, it seems, have explosive tips but one of the bolts didn't exactly hit the stone or the structure that Severian is climbing on. It struck a fissure or something. And rather than exploding, it just hangs in the rock, blazing with white fire. So it's not a typical medieval quarrel. In fact, it appears that these explode with a kind of napalm-like fire that clings to people that are nearby. So it's an area weapon as well. Often Severian is slow on the uptake, but he knows what's going on immediately. And in this case, he hopes they are not the repeater sort that they have in Severian's world that automatically inserts the next bolt as soon as the string is cocked. But that hope is dashed by an additional explosive strike right near him. So he just drops from the wall into the pool of water below. Actually, he forgot it was there. <laughs> and this reminds me of the James Bond movie, Diamonds Are Forever, where the mobsters pick up the woman that James Bond is with, Plenty O'Toole, and throw her out of a 10-story window. And she lands in the hotel pool, and James Bond says, nice shot. And the mobster says, I didn't know there was a pool there. Oh, it's like Plenty O'Toole was played by Lana Wood, Natalie Wood's sister, famous conspiracy theorist about Natalie Wood's death. But anyway, <laughs> the water quenches the area fire on Severian's arms and face. Now, a good idea would be to stay underwater and maybe swim away. But this is the base of the waterfall, and it's coming down with enough force for the current to force him back to the surface. But fortunately, the water brings him to the surface some distance away, so he can see 
two assassins and Agia, and he knows immediately that it is Agia before seeing her face, rushing to the water's edge to shoot him when he comes up. He's not far away from them, it appears anyway, but we assume the waterfall is noisy enough, and that's why they don't hear him. And this is fulfillment of the green man's prophecy that Severian is going to encounter Agia above ground. Severian took the prophecy to mean that they'd meet again before they both died, which is true. But in fact, it means that they'd meet after Severian left the underground, the underworld. Mm -hmm. Yep. Now, the text doesn't say he gets up in the bank, but he obviously does. He pulls Terminus Est and says, over here, Agia. He tells us this is the last time that he drew his sword that night, and I guess until he chops off the head of his driver when he enters Vodalus's camp. Agia has cat-like reactions, better than her henchmen, and she turns her face in the green moonlight. And then Severian says, I glimpsed her face in the moonlight. It was a terrible face to me, though for all her self-depreciation so lovely, because the sight of it meant that Thecla was surely dead. Yeah. So as soon as he sees her face, he knows beyond all possibility of mistake that this is a trap and there is zero hope that he'll ever see Thecla alive again. And he also says that it was a lovely face, which is a slight change from his previous descriptions of her. But a face can be lovely, I guess, without you know being knockout gorgeous. Yeah. And the reference to her self-depreciation, I suppose that means Agia didn't think she was especially pretty, or at least she talked as if she didn't. Yeah, or or dressed down. I mean, he always mm -hmm. talks about her more in, you know, I always think of it as like adventure clothes or something. Yeah. So, yeah. Their arrangement on the bank is with the henchmen to either side of Agia, one of the henchmen closer to Severian, like a little line. The henchmen turn and see Severian, and the one closest to him puts his arbalist to his shoulder. Severian sort of squats, ducking the bolt from the other guy, and swings his sword, chopping off the legs of the guy closest. Severian says the bolt whizzed over his head like a meteor. Severian stands and the other henchman has dropped his arbalist and is drawing his knife from his belt sheath. But Agia, again, reactions like a cat. He actually says that. She got an athame and slashes at Severian's throat. All right, so we talked about this before. An athame is a wizard's knife yep. or a witch's knife. Uh, other than having a black handle, there's nothing especially distinctive about an athame in our world that Severian would be able to identify it by type at the moment or from memory. But, you know, that's not our world. We don't know what it means in the Commonwealth. One thing we do know, though, because Severian knows it, the blade is poisoned. It seems like Agia and Agalus were running a like a weapons dealership. And when <laughs> Agia left to hunt Severian, she packs the whole store. Every time we see her, she's got a different weapon. So at this point, she's had a misericord that she just uh, sold before meeting Severian. And now it's this athame. And people offer the athame as proof that Agia is connected to the anti-New Sun wizards in the north. But, you know, I don't see it meaning in the other weapons. Yeah. And also too, remember they knew apparently who made Terminus Est or they, mm -hmm. they knew something yeah. about the sword. So yeah, they're. Or at least Agilus did. Yeah. That means that they're educated about these weapons, which again, right. to go back to no, my mom had a, a rag shop. Rag shop. <laughs> yeah. It's weird. 
Yeah. I mean, even if they're like pawnbrokers, <laughs> there's I it doesn't seem like that would be enough to really learn quite right. as much about different things. Yeah. Yeah. The only connecting thread that I can determine about these bladed weapons is they are bladed weapons and that they are diverse. It feels like the purpose of these weapons in this story is to show that she's got a lot of them and she can use them all. She's mm-hmm. a weapons master. So Varian dodges and parries her attack with his sword, and she jumps back and tells the other henchmen to circle behind him. And the henchman seems to have planned to ignore Agia and just go for the stab against Severian. But he gets distracted. His mouth gapes open and he swings wide. And I guess he's not really looking at Severian. Suddenly, a man-ape flies at the guy from behind Severian. Severian hears, quote, the ugly sound of a breaking skull. (laughs) Agia is graceful, whips around to stab the man-ape, but Severian uses his sword, I guess, to knock it out of her hand and into the water. And she runs, but not fast enough. Severian grabs her by the hair, pulls her backward to the ground. Then he puts his foot on her neck. And now the man-ape is muttering and pawing the henchman's body. Severian says that even at the date of this writing, he's still not sure if the creature was trying to loot the guy or if he was only curious about him. Maybe he was figuring out whether he'd make a good meal. But we know they do sneak into the village and steal children. One thing I thought, like, is he patting him down looking for the claw? Like, that's like, did he not really know which, which one, person Which one was? of these guys yeah. is which? I th- well, he's trying to yeah. save Severian, right? Well, that's what I wondered. I mean, maybe or maybe he just went after the guy and now he's looking for the claw and and... I don't know. I don't know. Well, but, okay, I, mean, well, I just don't think because he's he turns and he's basically he kneels and bows before Severian. That's true. Yeah. 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 But I wonder if it's knowable what the man ape was doing. I don't think he was looking for the claw. He knew Severian had it. Now, anyway, the man ape turns around and drops in worship and he holds up his arms saying something in a language that Severian doesn't understand. But there's a begging look in his eyes. One of his hands is gone. Severian recognizes Terminus Est's clean cut. So it happened in his fight in the cave. But these man-apes are amazingly resilient. His hand has been chopped off and the blood is merely seeping from the wound. And Severian says that they seem to have the ability of shutting down veins at major wounds. And this is an ability that Severian is familiar with from Thalacodons. This is the second mention of Thalacodons. Remember, Severian mentioned them in chapter four. They dig through garbage in the citadel. A Thalacodon is a prehistoric possum. <laughs> yep. The man-ape is going to discover just how dense Severian can be, though. He says, yeah, right, right, I cut off your arm, but it's all over with, we're good now. And, <laughs> and then he figures, oh, wait, he came out to see my gem. He came out to see the claw. Everybody wants to see my gem. And so Severian says he came out, quote, braving the fear engendered by whatever we had waked Below the hill, that big sound. And we'll talk about that in the next chapter. (laughs) So he pulls the claw from his boot and Agia perks up at that. Severian says her eyes went wide with cupidity. Cupidity means desire, particularly greed for wealth or power, but also, and perhaps this was the original meaning, sexual desire. But to be honest, this is Severian's assumption about what's going on in her head. But one thing for sure, Agia takes notice. And remember, Severian's still standing with her with his boot on her throat. Anyway, at this moment, 
The man-ape drops to the ground in worship, stretching out his stump. The thing is, Severian doesn't know about the potential power of the claw to heal. But the man-ape knows. So the three of them stand there in this tableau. And I like that you say tableau. I always wish that this was the cover. Like this moment, I wish would have been mm, yeah. the moment rather than sort of in the cave. But it just would have been asked so many questions about <laughs> what is this creature and why is the woman there? And yeah, there's all right. Stuff, you know. No, it, no, it's, it should be at least be illustrated somewhere. Yeah. Suddenly, Jonas calls down from above them like, you know, an angel. And in <laughs> fact, Severian compares his voice to a trumpet, quote, like the trumpet note in a shadow play that dissolves all feigning. The shout ended our tableau. A shadow play is a puppet show that is performed with paper dolls. So we've got two callbacks here. The paper doll play set that Thecla played with in the, uh, the Domnina story in chapter 20 of Shadow. And the other is the puppet show that Severian saw in his dream in Baldander's bed, and more on that later. Uh, also, the little uh, supper that they had in the Inn of Lost Loves ended with a trumpet sound. Mm-hmm. So there's a break here. Severian just tells us at this point that the man-ape runs off and Agia starts struggling and cursing under his foot. But, Craig, did more happen? Because... Later in the antechamber, Severian is standing over Jonas, whose flesh has been wounded, and he decides to use the claw to heal him. Specifically, he says, recalling the man-ape's severed hand, I made certain no one was observing us and began to trace the burn with the claw. And later in Sword of the Lictor, chapter three, when he's thinking about healing the kid, he says, I remember the Ulan who had appeared dead until I touched his lips with the claw and who now seemed to me to belong to the remote past. And I remembered the man-ape with his stump of arm and the way Jonas's burns had faded when I ran the claw along their length. In other words, the man-ape gets recalled every time Severian thinks about the healing power of the claw. So did Severian in this moment heal the man-ape's arm? Right. And I... I don't know. I, I got to say, I tend to think he didn't and that he remembers this as sort of like afterwards he put together the idea that somehow the man ape knew this would heal him. I didn't know that, but maybe the, the man ape did. Um, so you could see it as like a, a progression of him sort of realizing what the claw can do. Like here, somebody else seems to know, then the burns fade on Jonas. Then he actually goes to the little girl and sort of the lictor and, you know, brings her almost like back to life if she had exact died exactly died but you know he's sort of working up to Hmm. that that direct thing that that could be but i also wonder yeah like did he do it like i had honestly remembered at one point thinking that it was the claw that stopped the bleeding like at least that he touched it with a claw but it wasn't Hmm. it's something you know this of course he talks about here is whatever you know something about their physiology but yeah and i don't know i mean in earth there's of course the place where he actually can regrow an arm right he can Mm -hmm. he actually can put it back here like i always thought of that as a good callback to this moment but like in that in earth he talks all about the feeling of shaping flesh with his hands and all that and he gets really graphic about regrowing 
a limb. Um, whereas here he wouldn't have had near the confidence or mm -hmm. knowledge or whatever to do that. But I don't know Would it, it, do you have a different sense? The constant references to the man ape. At first I thought, you know, when I read this, I thought, well, yeah, okay, he runs off, but constantly calling back the man ape every time he does a healing when he recalls him in the antechamber and then again in sort of the lictor yeah i i think i i, did, I didn't this is one of the reasons why I, I when i finished this book i thought wolf was a so-so writer <laughs> I said, well he's he's kind of implying he did something that he didn't do but now i that i understand wolf i I see something there. I think Severian is leaving that out for some reason. I think he healed the manate. Yeah, that's that's what I was gonna ask. Like, do you why what would be the point of leaving it out here, apart from just sort of the dramatic effect of Well, the dramatic effect is is obviously an important one for Wolf the author. Right. What would be the point with Severian? I don't know. Perhaps it was very uncanny to him at the time. But if, if, it, if it happened, I would think that it would have had to happen before Jonas calls down from above. In other words, it's the three of them standing there in this tableau. Yeah. And then Jonas calls down and ends it. And by that time, Severian has healed the arm. Could That's be. the only way it could happen. And it just feels right. It had always struck me that it felt like that's what was being conveyed. So, yeah, I guess if I had to decide, I would say, yeah, he healed the man-ape's arm. So one other thing that would change then maybe is that Agia would have seen it happen, right? Mm -hmm. Like she would have seen this thing be more than just an expensive jewel. So would that have affected her at all? Or was she just so filled with revenge lust that... Well, she, the thing she says that it can do implies, perhaps, you know, when they're on, going on the way to the botanical garden, when she mm -hmm. describes all the things it can do, it is believable that she believes that those things are true. In fact, when she talks about the conciliator, if he, let's imagine that he's real, and then which, in which case he was a, a being of power so that he could turn around and show up here right now. So... I think maybe Agia is far more religious than we've, uh, than a lot of her acts make us think that she is. We talked about it when they were on their way in, I guess, what, chapter 18, chapter 19. It's a very religious conversation. Mm -hmm. She seems to know a lot about yeah. it. And oh, she yeah. comes off as kind of believing it. So yeah. I, it's hard to say how that affects her morally. It doesn't really it isn't really clear what kind of moral code the new sun religion is uh, conveys yeah it's entirely believable that she always believed that the claw has power and perhaps she sees it though for the first yeah. time anyway severian whacks agia with the side of his blade to shut her up and just keeps her pinned until jonas gets down there and jonas arrives and says I thought you might need help. I perceive I was mistaken. He talks a bit <laughs> like Spock. <laughs> Severian says this wasn't a real fight. Um, so 
how did Jonas find Severian? He didn't have the letter. Severian's mm-hmm. horse, an exalted destrier, was faster than his Merikip. Does he have special tracking abilities in his robot body? <laughs> anyway, it's a good thing Severian left him his Merikip because now he has a ride home. The destrier ran off. But yeah, I don't know how he finds him. And, and I don't know if it's just supposed to be a bit of good luck. Just a way to get Jonas there, you know, Mm. unless otherwise, maybe, who knows, maybe the mine is the only significant thing nearby outside of town. Maybe he has, you know, maybe he has infrared side, you know, who knows? (laughs) Yeah. Well, so it turns out that Agia brought four henchmen, but when the bodies of the man apes started pouring out of the cavern entrance, two of them ran away. She calls the man apes Firefly Tigermen. The tiger men is what gets me. I mean, the firefly, you can see from the the sort of glowy thing about mm-hmm. it. But the tiger men, like, because he calls them apes and she calls them tigers. And um, and he just said their faces were bestial. He didn't really say that they really looked like gorilla heads or something. Right, right. He calls them man apes. But the truth is, you know, yeah. at some point he sees that they look like people. If they're glowing, it's kind of a yellowish light. Maybe that's what yeah. she means by yeah. tigers. Yeah. Jonas scratches his head with his steel hand, his normal hand. And Severian says that it sounded like a big horse being brushed. <laughs> a, a grooming brush has steel bristles. And Jonas says, oh, so I did see that. A glowing being in a fur robe making obeisance to you. You were holding up a cup of burning brandy, I think. Or was it incense? So Jonas doesn't see the light of the gym as blue, but red. Is there any significance to that? That I've often wondered, like, is there something about not being completely human and Mm -hmm. you see it differently? I mean, the one thing that would make me think is if you're not completely human, then is it like you're living a twilight life? Like, like the new sun is red instead of some other. I don't know. But yeah, I don't really know what to make of that, though. Otherwise, because the the claw works on him like it does. Right. No, no, it's yeah. Yeah. But I mean, he could have an entirely different perception, and mm-hmm. that could be you know, part of the way he found Severian. Who knows? Yeah. Then Jonas sees the man's weapon, and Severian says, it's a bludgeon. And Jonas says, yeah, I see that. <laughs> it's one of those maces. And they don't say anything yet, but Jonas picks it up and keeps it. Then Severian gets Jonas up to speed. Severian briefly describes he and Agia's history and the death of Agalas. And there's more evidence that Severian and Jonas have not been together very long. This is the first that he's heard about Agia, the girl who tried to kill him just before he left Nessus. And chatty Kathy Severian has never mentioned either her or Agalas. Severian lets Agia up and she gives her, you know, foiled again speech that the only reason her henchmen missed their shot was that they could barely see Severian in the dark because of his cloak. In reference to Severian executing Agalus, Jonas says, so now she's come to join him. There's absolutely no doubt in his mind what Severian is going to do next. Severian is going to take out a person who stalked him all the way out of Nessus plotted his death a second time, so he makes up a reason to leave them alone, so he'll have plausible deniability. Which brings another question. Is Jonas incapable of lying? Hmm. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah. And I'm also thinking about his breakdown. Like, is his breakdown later on because he was lying about himself for so long? Or something? I don't hmm. know. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, Severian explains that Agia wrote the letter that Severian got during supper, that there were mistakes in it, but he ignored them. But finally, Severian puts the claw back in his boot and Jonas exits. So when he says there were mistakes, do I've seen some people talk and, and I don't know that anyone's ever exactly sure what precisely the mistakes were. Well, they could be problems with the description of the relations of the tower, um, mm-hmm. you know, the way things work as far as Palamon and Gerlo, what the, you know, just the fact that Gerlo would ever uh, lie or, you know, betray yeah. his duty. That's actually probably the best one, especially with the whole story about Gerlo's being a stickler to the law. I mean, we just get that story in this chapter. So. Right. Yeah. Agia explains that the reason they didn't kill Severian when he arrived is that her henchmen didn't want to waste their quarrels. And I guess each one is expensive. She says they were stupid and stubborn as men always are. <gasps> Wolf, Miss Indry. <laughs> she tells him that she was the one who threw the boulder at him when he was climbing up the waterfall cliff face to, you know, to get into the cavern. Severian assumes the henchman told her about the mine. And Severian, of course, assumes that Agia grew up in Nessus. But Agia says, All the local people tell stories about this place. They say those things come out at night during storms and take animals from the cow sheds and sometimes break into the houses for children. There's also a legend that they guard treasure inside, so I put that in the letter too. I thought if you wouldn't come for your Thecla, you might for that. Lee Berman has argued that the drawing of the Jurupari suggests an illusion either direct or authorial regarding this cave. But if we believe Agia, and there's no requirement that we do, but she does seem sure that Severian is about to kill her right then. Mm -hmm. So why lie? But if we believe her, then Agia didn't know any specific details about the inside of this cave. As it always is with Agia, all the theories go in every direction. Mm Mm-hmm. Something else. A Severian writes that the moonlight turned Agia's bare shoulders to something more precious and more beautiful than flesh. That would be gold, I guess. I don't know. I mean, the moonlight would have been green, right? So yeah, maybe emeralds. Yeah. Could be. Sorry, now I'm just thinking, like, does that remind him of the green man? And so now he's thinking, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so you're going to kill me now. So what does it matter? Can I stand with my back to you, Severian? If it's all the same, I don't want to see it coming. This is actually a big relief to Severian because he didn't think he could do it if he were looking at her. He prepares himself to execute Agia. He refers to Terminus Est, as I mentioned, as his own iron phallus, which I suppose is to draw a connection between himself and Gerlo. Perhaps Severian thinks of himself as a coward at this point because he can't bring himself to do the deed. He's brought his own loathing with him to this act. Another interesting thing, Severian says, I felt there was one more thing I wanted to ask Agia, but I could not recall what it might be. And I have no idea what this thing he wanted to ask is either. The feeling could just be a description of this moment of immobility. Unable to strike, unable not to strike. Yeah, or if it's one of the many mysteries like we've been talking about. Yeah. <laughs> like, was it just like, what was that What was thing. that sign you signed you put outside the door? Or, right. Or any of those things. Yeah, yeah he should. He, he definitely should have asked some questions at this point. 
Or about the maybe he wanted to ask about the bands too. He wanted no, to ask about yeah. the mask bands on Agilist. <laughs> I meant I meant to look at them, but I forgot. Yep. So yeah. the thing is, as I mentioned, Severian has only been around Agia for eight hours or so. He's not incapable of killing a woman, but in the case of Agia, well, Agia is special. And she says, Strike, I'm ready, which is a callback to Morwenna. And it's a callback to Catherine at the elevation ceremony. Mm -hmm. Severian readies his footing. He prepares the female edge of the sword. He notes that the guard of the blade has a woman's head so that he can remember which side it is. And eventually he hears Agia say again, strike. But by this time, he's already out of the Lily Valley. Okay, Mr. DeMille, uh, Mr. Brewer, I'm ready for my curiositus earthus now. Curiositas Urthus. So, as you know, I'm dissatisfied with the consensus explanation of Severian's time in Ball Danner's bed. I'm dissatisfied with the idea of the Undines reaching out to Severian in a dream. I'm dissatisfied with the explanations of the meaning of that dream, but I'm not going to go fully into that here. But I want to talk about Ball Danner's dream. When Baldanders wakes up, he sees Carnifex Severian and realizes that he was sleeping in his bed and says, Then I know whence my dreams rose, of caverns below, where stone teeth dripped blood, of arms dismembered found on sanded paths, and things that shook chains in the dark. So, I think the consensus is that Baldanders is dreaming about the Manichin. Yes, the Manichin does have tunnels underneath it. It also has sanded paths mentioned in the elevation ceremony. But, you know, the rest of it just doesn't fit. It all does fit with this event here. Stalactites mm-hmm. dripping with blood from Severian's fight with the man-apes. The severed arms on the sanded paths. Another understanding is that Bald Anders is foretelling the future, and I don't like that either. So, I want to propose... A first Severian theory here. As you know, I've been holding on to this for quite a while. Good. And it's been a while since we've had one. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't done a whole lot of first Severian since the No, started. no, no. It's time for first Severian again. Neither Severian's dream with the Undines, the puppet show doesn't quite accurately describe what happens during Baldander's fight with Severian, nor Baldander's dreams are of current or future events. Instead, they are memories of an event that never happened or will happen because they have happened to a previous iteration of Severian and Baldanders in a previous universe cycle. Okay, let me work in another thread. When Severian first claps eyes on Agia, he says, I felt that we too might commit some act so atrocious that the world seeing us would find it irresistible. Severian and Agia never do that. So I'm going to pick up a few pieces here. Agia knows about the cave. She is, I think, from this area or passed through it from the north. She knows the stories about this cave and the rumors of the treasure. I shall propose something that is similar to a first Severian theory proposed by Michael Andre Driussi, that first Severian and Agia were a kind of Bonnie and Clyde team. In his opinion, Hathor was part of their crew. 
I'm not so sure about the Hathor part, but I'm inclined to a slight tweak on that. That first Severian encountered Agia the day after he left the Citadel, just as it occurred in chapter 16 of Shadow of the Torture. I don't know what happened immediately afterward, but I do believe that she took him to the Botanic Gardens because Severian was expected to be there that day. And Dorcas's body was moved so that he could be pushed into the water and encounter her, pull her up from the bottom when she was resurrected. The rest, I don't know. But I'll proffer that the project that First Severian and Baldanders pull off together is not the play, which is a hasty ad hoc affair that Dr. Talos puts together because he's told to the night before he meets Severian in order to have Severian perform in it, in order that Severian will see it at House Absolute. Remember that Talos's reasons for befriending Severian make zero sense, and he seems to be getting advanced information about Severian's future. Now, the project that First Severian and Baldanders and Agia pull off together is the heist at the cavern. They were a little gang. And when Severian and Baldanders are in bed together, these memories of their previous iterations are triggered in the world of dreams, like memories of a previous life, which is exactly what they were. Agia has the knowledge of the cavern, and First Severian and First Baldanders, if you like, are the muscle. Anyway, Baldanders' dream was of himself in the cavern with First Severian fighting off man-apes and fleeing with ingots of silver and gold maces. And that is how Baldanders got the money to rebuild his house, not from the Autark after the play, because in the life of the First Severian, the Autark had no advanced knowledge of Severian. And I think this works better than the Manichan interpretation of Baldanders' dream, and it works better for me than Baldanders foretelling Severian's future in this dream. Wow. And that is my curiosity to Earthus. So the one thing I could add would be that maybe then the big giant thing that he hears is like a different version. Of maybe Baldanders was the giant. Or I don't know. <laughs> maybe it's just some echo. I don't know. From a different world. Well, Baldanders dream. He does know of yeah. that thing. Whatever yeah, he talks it is. about the chains so it, and the deep. Yeah. 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 It has to be the same. I'm I'm still flailing about for for answers to that, but we'll talk about that next chapter. Isn't okay. This is a small thing, but isn't in Lord of the Rings? Isn't the is it? Oh no, it's drums, drums in the deep, not chains yeah. in the deep. Okay, but there is a yeah. I mean, there is a definitely a feel to that. Yeah, and everyone notices that. Yeah, I was just trying to think if if the line had been chains in the deep or something. That would be so perfect. Yeah, it would have been beautiful. Yeah. Wow that that's specific. I, get it. I mean, like that's, and honestly, that's one thing that makes me a little skeptical of it was, is just because, I mean, that's a lot to piece together, but it, at the same time, it's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> well, I hope it fits. My, my biggest thing is, is are the, for these theories are when something says, well, yeah, yeah. that's problematic. And also maybe then one, one other flag for that could be the fact that he's like, I wanted to ask her something else, but I forgot what it was. It's like some connection to, yeah, whatever was there. Like he feels like he's got some connection, but he can't piece it together. Quite quite get it. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Well, one other thing I wanted to get back to just a little bit was about courage and why in this chapter, why does Severian bring up the story about courage, which then complicates courage. Um, And then he shows us the story where he could kill her, but he doesn't. And it could be seen as mercy. And, you know, another place where he might mix up courage and cowardice. 
right. a little bit. But I also wanted to know if you thought there was something about talking about Asia and courage, or if it's really more here about Severian just sort of becoming more self-aware and about what he thinks of as courageous or cowardly. Well, he he's definitely drawing a parallel between the armager's daughter, who Gerlo is going to have to abuse, right. and the act of executing Agia. Right. Which are also, in both cases, as far as the torture is concerned, are the right thing to do. Right. But which neither can quite decide that it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And even Jonas is going to say, you know, he doesn't think it was necessarily the right thing to do, but he would have done it. Right. right. He's like, I would have, I would have been forced to do it. And so, yeah. So then maybe the courage here is Severian having the courage in the moment to still do the right thing. Uh, right. Even though probably so many forces were telling him, no, I should kill her and end this. Yeah. yeah. This is such a complicated story. And then we come to this little thing at the end that ties it all together. It's, it's really poetic. Um, I like this chapter more because I always thought of it as more of an action chapter, but not, not so much of a thematic chapter. Right. But no, there's so much here that really balances out and mirrors things, but in a way that makes, makes them both a little more complicated rather than really clarifying <laughs> what, right. what exactly courage is in these moments or just talks about how complicated it is. It's just, yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. So we certainly hope you have comments, thoughts, corrections, and complaints about my curiositus earthus that is infuriatingly specific and also <laughs> not infuriating. <laughs> oh, you don't no. know some of our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> and also about courage and cowardice and the connection between Agia and the Armager's daughter and the scene and between Severian and Gerlo. This so much is actually going on. And like I said, this only takes a matter of minutes in this entire chapter. Mm -hmm. So why are we talking about this so long? But whatever you uh, you have for us, I hope you'll bring them to us on the Facebook group, the subreddit, the Twitter, or email. You can find out how to do that on the show notes. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your wolf-reading friends. And until you hear from us next, may the Moira favor you. See you next time.
that's good. Yeah, I really don't know what else to make of the of that possibility. I mean, it, the way you put it together works. But I just. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it shouldn't um, but it shouldn't be couldn't work because <laughs> no no the only other thing i would wonder about it is then does that kind of end Aggie, Aggie's story there like for first severian is that kind of just or no, is that I just the first of many bonnie and clyde there is something else going on there yeah. was a there was i think a massive breakup he has this scene uh this moment later where mm-hmm. he starts he's thinking if i had one of those, uh, you know, those pterodactyl things. He yeah. calls them Hathor's things. Yeah. I would beat down a city, you know, a whole cities in anger over it. And he, he he makes a reference to a line in the play from Dorcas, but it really feels like Agia. Oh, interesting. And okay. yeah, I think so. Oh, yeah. Okay. So yeah, yeah there's yeah. something. There was there was some kind of a breakup. And I don't, once again, I think we're all fig, trying to put together the first Severian story. And my, I'm going into the, the play now with the assumption that it is not about our Severian, about his future. It is about the first Severian mm-hmm. who's telling Severian his story yeah. through this play. Interesting. And I, I probably wouldn't have come upon this if I hadn't kind of finally formulated my idea of the fifth head of Cerberus mm-hmm. with the, the plot stuck right there in the middle of the novel. And I oh, think, gotcha. I think he's really kind of doing the same thing with the play. Huh? That's cool. Okay. That might be a way to kind of win me over. Yeah. <laughs> like if, no, if I can come up with an interpretation of the play. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, honestly, like if there's because there's so much about the play that does seem to connect to, of course, the the larger story, but then but other things that just seem random. Yeah. You know? And it's just, and I never like if there could be a reason for the randomness parts. That would right. be cool. That would be really cool. Yeah. All right. All right. Awesome. Okay. Oh, I should hit stop. I forgot to hit stop. Oh, there was there was someone recently who said, "Hey, take my I'm take me off. I'm I'm hot." Why <laughs> <laughs> didn't Fiki, Dozy, and Titch start form their own band? <laughs> like I'm always. Sometimes I was worried. Oh, I didn't say enough in that one. But I'll look at it. And it's it's never too bad. There's the way to talk about Kurt. Of course, he talks about it here. Is is he gets really graphic about regrowing be more than just an expensive oh hold on we got to take a break real quick i got it my dog's doing something crazy um well forget that one but uh, <laughs> if it if it comes back it will oh shoot there was something else i was gonna say